This is a fresh agenda. Conversations to connect your productivity and creativity and generate your deepest work. Here is your host, Christina Mendonza. This is a fresh agenda where we chat with innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. I'm Christina Mendonza. So glad to have you here in this tiny part of the podcast universe. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please check out my other episodes. Subscribe, share, rate if you have the time. I would be so appreciative. This is episode 99. And my guest today is taking on one of the biggest questions in science. What is life? The answer seems pretty obvious. Carl Zimmer is a science writer. He's written for the New York Times. He's the author of over a dozen science books. His latest is called Life's Edge, and it is a fascinating investigation through the strange experiments that have attempted to define and sometimes recreate life. Is life consciousness? Is it brain activity? We're going to get into all of that. Literally hundreds of definitions exist, but none has yet emerged as an obvious winner. And the question of what is life hangs over some of society's most charged conflicts, whether we're talking about a fertilized egg or whether or not we declare a person legally dead, or could AI lead to conscious computers? Would that be considered life? Now, I'm definitely a science fan. I fangirl on all kinds of science. I love to learn. I love to take courses all the time. It's the way many of us are doing things these days to learn new things. And Mind Meld Learning is there for you with HR courses on sexual harassment, human trafficking, and their new course for responsible beverage service. They help you learn, grow, and stay in compliance with all the mandatory training in life. What's better is that these courses aren't just boring PowerPoints and droning voiceover. These are written and produced by award-winning journalists and filmmakers. So they're really interesting to watch, too. And I know this because I write a lot of these courses. I work with Mind Melt Learning, and we just finished the new Responsible Beverage Service course for the new mandatory laws in place in California. So check them out. Uh, you can go to getrbs.com and tell your HR director about Mind Meld Learning. All right, Carl Zimmer will join us for what life is in terms of science. Uh, but what about what life is in terms of philosophy? What makes life worth living? The vaccinations are rolling out now. You can feel a definite optimism in the air. Things are changing. Things are opening. California is going to be opening completely in June. So one of the books I've read during this time is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I've reread it. And he, Viktor Frankl was a concentration camp inmate. And he writes uh, about how people in dire circumstances, like in a concentration camp, find meaning in their lives. And his book boils it down to these three things. Experiencing reality by interacting authentically with the environment and with others. This is all about being in the moment, right? We talk about that a lot these days. So Viktor Frankl knew even way back then that that was one of the essentials for a meaningful life. Another thing he says, giving something back to the world through creativity and self-expression. Everyone has the opportunity and the ability to do this. Don't say you're not a creative type. You are. You just have not tapped that river of creativity that runs through you. And there are lots of different ways to tap it. So that's another way we get meaning from life. And another is changing our attitude when faced with a situation or circumstance that we cannot change. 
That falls very much in line with the concept of stoicism, which I've been reading more and more about and appreciating its alignment with my own values. There's a great podcast, by the way, it's called The Daily Stoic. It's by Ryan Holiday. He's written a lot of books on the topic. It's the first thing I listen to when I wake up each morning. Great meditations on life. He will take one of the passages from one of the uh, great Stoics, and it'll kind of help you set your intention for the day. Okay, let's get to Carl Zimmer and our discussion on the definition of life. Well, I suppose I've been puzzling over what life is ever since I was a kid. I mean, it's the kind of question, uh, what is life, that you ask your parents and usually don't get a very satisfying answer uh, in return. And, you know, as a science writer, I have been writing about life for years, um, whether it's jellyfish or maple trees or bacteria. Uh, You know, there's all sorts of amazing things about life to learn. But um, when you step back and just say, well, what is this thing? What is is life? Um, It's amazing that actually it's hard to get a clear answer from the scientists themselves. Uh, in fact, there are hundreds of definitions that scientists have put forward over the years, and they keep coming up with new ones. They're not actually converging in on some agreed-on uh, definition. And in fact, the, you, we're, we have the situation where if you move out to sort of the borderlands between life and non-life, uh, it's a very strange kind of uh, world out there with with things that are that uh, have some of the things that we think are essential for life but don't have others. Uh, and it's really important to answering you know lots of the biggest questions in science, like you know how did life begin here? Or you know NASA is sending you know has just sent another probe to Mars to look for signs of life. Well, what should they be looking for? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, they're not expecting Martians to look exactly like us, but what what should they expect? And that's actually mm-hmm. a, a totally open question. Well, you know, it strikes me just this is such a it's a it's a topic that is of interest no matter your age. I have a, a, my husband teaches sixth grade science. And some of these big issues are issues that they discuss in their classroom. You know, viruses are viruses alive or not alive. And and when I think of it, I think of all of the new technology coming out, the A.I. And, and you know, are we going to create something that will meet the qualifications for life um, if we create conscious computing? I mean, is this something that you explore in the book as well? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, for us as humans, consciousness is something that we think is really important to whether we're alive or not. I mean, even if you look, you know, at the law, you know, brain death has become the definition of death. You know, if you're, if you have an, an accident you lose consciousness, um, and you're never going to regain it. Um, you know, if, if your brain has been so damaged that uh, all that's happening is your organs are being kept going, that for us is death. Even though, like, the lungs are still working, the heart is still beating, the body temperature is still stable, but for us, that, that is something else. So uh, what happens when, when and if we make things that um, – can learn really complicated things and maybe even become aware of themselves inside a computer. Uh, is that life? Well, you know, they, they're not exactly, you know, uh, reproducing uh, or evolving. Mm-hmm. And that, those are some of the hallmarks that 
scientists usually think life has. Um, but they do have this one little corner of, of life uh, maybe worked out. So what are we going to do with those things? Uh, it's a really good question. And, it's, you know, it's, it's, in the book I also talk about uh, another uh, similar uh, brain puzzle. Um, so scientists now uh, can actually grow a, what are kind of like little human brains in a dish. Um, they can take a skin cell from you and program – that skin cell with certain chemicals to turn into a neuron. And then that neuron can start dividing uh, into more neurons and they organize themselves in the same way our brain cells are organized. Uh, and these little pea-sized things made up of hundreds of thousands of cells can even start to produce brain waves. Um, so what wow. are we dealing with? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, these, these are human cells. Um, and these are human cells that are organized just in, in some striking ways like, like brains. Um, and they're able to survive. You know, the scientists are keeping these things alive for months, years. Um, and, uh, and they're becoming more and more sophisticated and complex. So they're alive in their basic sense that, like, they're feeding, you know, they're, they're, they're slurping up the chemicals in their dishes, and they're growing, and they're dividing. Um, and on top of that, they seem to be doing things that our own brains do. So mm -hmm. what do we do if they start learning? Right. Wow. You know, I, I don't know about you, but science to me is comforting. It, you know, looking at these big macro macro issues, it, it kind of makes us feel small and curious and awestruck. What do you love about writing about science? I mean, you've got like 13 books now. I mean, you've taken on so many different topics. What do you still love about it? Um, it always has the capacity to surprise me. Uh, you know, when scientists are learning about the universe, they'll just stumble across something that just makes you say, wait, what? Are, really? Like, is, it, is, is, this, is this for real? Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I, I kind of thought when I got into the science writing business that maybe at some point the scientists will figure everything out. There wouldn't be any more surprises left, but um, I have to say that uh, they're nowhere close to that uh, yet. And so um, there's just way more science uh, than there's time to write about. Um, and yeah, and you know, working on the on this book, you know, in a way, I sort of thought I'd be kind of like going back to some you know familiar themes uh, in the history of science. There is some of that, but then there's just like constant surprises that I would come across that uh, that I just had to find a place in the, in the book for, you know, for example, um, these animals that are called, that are called tardigrades. They're, their nickname is water bears. They're these microscopic little animals that have cute little legs. They kind of look like bears. Um, and they're all over the place. They're incredibly abundant. Um, and they um, make a mockery of our notions of life versus death. Um, if they, get dried out. They don't die the way we would. Um, instead, they go through this very complex process where they replace all the water in their cells with other molecules. And in the, in the process, they essentially turn into sort of a, you can think of it kind of like a glass, sort of a protein glass. They're fixed. Nothing moves inside their cells. So they're not, they can't be considered alive anymore because there's no metabolism happening inside of them. 
but they're not dead either. They're in another state. And in fact, they can, they can endure in this state for, for literally for decades. You can send them on a rocket ship into outer space and then bring them back to Earth. And if you douse them with water, they will pull the water back into their cells and take apart the glass and go about their business like nothing else had happened. Wow. And, you know, when you keep, yeah, when you, you know, and that you just come across those things all the time. And so that's, <laughs> that's one of the things that keeps me going. Man, you know, so many people wonder why we spend so much time and money on efforts to explore other planets when there's things like that here on Earth that we still need to be exploring. Uh, tell me about, um, you know, one of the things mentioned is, is Saturn's, one of Saturn's moons. Uh, talk to me about that part of your book and what was interesting there. So one of the really uh, important reasons to, to get a better fix on life and and, and to understand what it is and what it could be is because um, we, we have a curiosity about whether there's life beyond Earth. And uh, within our solar system, there are a few key places that scientists are really interested in. Mars is one of them, but then so are some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. And so there's this one moon in Saturn called Enceladus that some scientists are really, really curious about. It's covered in ice. And then it has this ocean, uh, a water ocean uh, underneath. And at the, at, on the seafloor, there's all sorts of uh, you know, energy and activity happening um, because the moon gets stretched by tidal forces as it goes around Saturn. And so there's huge amounts of energy down there. And that leads to really cool chemistry. We don't know what exactly that chemistry has produced down there because you know, we can't see through ice. But um, but sometimes there are these huge plumes of water vapor that shoot up uh, out of the ice. And, you know, the, the Cassini probe that uh, we sent out there to that part of the solar system has actually flown through that plume and has been able to sample it. And there are, there are some organic compounds, um, the kinds of compounds mm. that scientists think might have been involved in the origin of life on Earth. So, you know, is there life under that ice? Um, it's conceivable. Um, or maybe life is in the process of emerging there. Maybe they're like strange sort of giant chimneys that are where lots of uh, hot water is surging through them and doing all sorts of weird chemical reactions that could be producing the building blocks of what might be life someday. So scientists want to Scientists would love to go to Enceladus. Um, you know, one idea is to take a, a little mini uh, DNA sequencer and put it on a space probe and fly it through that plume and just scoop up uh, some of the, 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 uh, the sample, uh, scoop up a sample and then see, well, is there something like DNA in there? You know, or is there life down there that has genes that are maybe a little bit like our DNA? We could figure that out. Or... If you really want to get to know what's going on in there, you just basically like send a probe that could drill down through the ice and then dive in like a submarine. And and there are actually people at NASA who get to make plans for that for a living, which I think is incredibly cool. That is incredibly cool. Wow. Okay. So, um, boy, the tardigrades and the and the Saturn moon, that those are two uh, fun things. Let's talk about the exploration of the opposite of life, death, because that's something that's mentioned, too, about how we can maybe expand our perspective on life for understanding death better. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, life and death have you know long been seen as being sort of in opposition. And you know, in fact, there was a very influential scientist uh, around 1800 who, who literally defined life as the, the processes that resist death. Uh, and so, you know, our life is is, is this resistance. Um, you know, the the challenge there is that um, you know we we're now in a situation where we can keep people um, in a in one of these strange uh, states in between life and death for potentially very long periods of time because we have ventilators. Ventilators can keep some people alive long enough so they can recover on their own. For other people, sadly, it's just a it's just sort of a prologue before before death. Um, and that's really like forced us to, de- to decide, well, what do we mean by life and death? Um, you know, we've come to sort of define death legally as brain death, because for us, what really matters to, to life is the activity of our brain. Um, but, you know, you have to bear in mind that a person on a ventilator, um, they are keeping their body temperature stable uh, they are keeping their their lungs are staying maintained so that they can take in the oxygen that's supplied from the ventilator. So they have some features of life, but not others. And you know, we've never been face to face with that before. You know, with our own species, um, but we need to to reckon with that because um, because there will be cases where where people will differ, uh, and there have been court cases where people have said. You know, people have said, well, this person has been declared brain dead, so therefore they're dead. And the family's like, no, no, they're there, um, even if they never regain consciousness. Yeah. So so, the, so these are issues uh, uh, that are, you know, the, these are issues about, you know, the big questions about, you know, life in the universe, big philosophical questions, but also the kinds of questions that we think about when we, you know, go to court or go to the voting booth. Um, it's the question of what life is, is is everywhere. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's just in the abortion controversy alone, there's like, you know, been decades of conversation about when life begins. Uh, scientists, uh, that are, you know, in, in understanding tardigrades and some of these more unusual forms of life or things that are on the, the boundary between life and death, understanding those is great and it adds to our knowledge of our universe. How does it help us medically? Like, could understanding tardigrades teach our cells to hibernate or help us develop medications that can help certain diseases? Oh, absolutely. Um yeah, so the, the the fascinating thing is that um, when scientists go into these uh, borderlands of life, as I, I call them in, in the book, um, they go out of curiosity, uh, but they sometimes come out with incredible discoveries that have really practical applications. Um, and so uh, understanding how um, a tardigrade turns into glass, as it were, or you know how how does a frog just get frozen in in a winter pond and then come out in the spring um, just fit as a fiddle? The, those insights could be really helpful uh, medically. Um, for example, um, there could be insights about how to preserve organs uh, for transplantation. You know, there's a big problem as soon as uh, a, a uh, a donor uh, uh, donates an organ and, you know, surgeons take it out of their body. 
um, the cells are immediately falling apart because um, they're no longer alive. So um, can, can doctors, you know, use certain chemicals or certain treatments to, to keep these organs intact and viable for longer? And that will lead to more people surviving because their transplanted organs will work better. Um, so there's lots of work going on in that direction. There are just things that sort of pop up that you just, you would never expect. For example, in Life's Edge, I write about the study of the origin of life, which is, you know, one of the biggest questions in science. But, you know, maybe it feels a little abstract. Like, what does that really matter? Well, um, a scientist I profiled in a book named David Deemer was trying to think about um, how it was that, you know, the first cells might be able to take in some of the building blocks for genes. And um, he sort of pictured them being pulled through little pores and, into the cells. And he said, huh, wait a minute. Like, as that goes through the pore, it creates a little uh, change in the electric field inside that pore. Like, wait a minute. Like, you could pull DNA through a pore like that, and you could read the DNA sequence just by measuring the field. Hmm. Uh, and he, pat he patented this idea, and this was uh, decades ago, and um, now that is actually one of the leading ways of sequencing DNA. It's called nanopore sequencing. Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing technology. Uh, it's, a, it's a device about the size of a pack of cards, um, and you just put a little sample in, you plug it into your laptop, and it sequences the DNA and puts it into your uh, computer incredibly fast. And we're actually, scientists are actually using nanopore sequencing right now uh, during the pandemic to, uh, to read the, the genes of coronaviruses. Uh, and it's nanopore sequencers that they're thinking about putting on a space probe and sending to Enceladus. And it all came about because someone was trying to think about life in its most basic primordial form. Boy, that's fascinating because, I mean, sequencing DNA has typically been really laborious, right? I mean, and that could even help like law enforcement. And there's so many different applications to kind of speed up the process of identifying DNA. Absolutely. Yeah. And, this, and so this is one of the one of several really revolutionary new techniques that are, are, are uh, just making DNA sequencing just a standard part of, of medicine, a standard part of um natural history you know so scientists scientists don't have to necessarily like take you know if they're studying insects in a rainforest they don't have to actually have to bring the insects back to a lab someplace to sequence their dna they just do it right there in the forest with mm. these sequencers fascinating wow i love this okay so um you know authors hate this question <laughs> i'm sorry but i do need to know you've written 13 books you've covered the viruses the brain genetics evolution i mean is there is there something you haven't tackled yet that you would like to explore next i mean i'm wondering with the pandemic if there's you know some new ideas that you have for perhaps a, a new book um you, you know it's it's been an interesting year. Um, you know, I started writing Life's Edge in 2019, and I was getting pretty close to finishing it uh, in early 2020. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, the pandemic locked everything down. You know, a couple additional trips I had in mind just were not going to happen. Uh, and, at the, you know, while I was wrapping up the book, I was – uh, starting to uh, get involved with the pandemic coverage at the New York Times. And we have been writing like crazy and, you know, filing sometimes two or three stories a day. And 
Um, I'm taking off a couple of weeks just to, you know, for the publication of Life's Edge, just to talk about that. And then I'm going back into pandemic duty at the newspaper. Um, and I'm just waiting for that to subside. You know, the vaccines are rolling out. It's, it's amazing and inspiring. And I really am confident that within a few months, this pandemic will be very much under control. And, you know, my services as someone who likes to write about viruses may not be uh, in quite so much demand as a newspaper. <laughs> and, and then I'm going to think about my next book. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. One last question uh, before I let you go. What do you do to recharge your own batteries? Think about, you know, what you'd like to write, write about next. I mean, how do you kind of, I mean, that's a lot of creative energy, a lot of output. Um, what do you do to kind of recharge? Um, well, where I live in Connecticut, we're very fortunate that there are huge areas uh, of uh, preserves, um, salt marshes, forests, and so on. I just go out in the woods and take a, I take a really long hike. Um, and, you know, there's always something out there that surprises me just in the natural world. And um, I just let my brain kind of wander as I go. Um, that's, to me, that's, that's, that's what saves me. Wonderful. Carl Zimmer, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Life's Edge, uh, looking forward to getting all the way through the book. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Carl Zimmer. His book is called Life's Edge, and he has a dozen more books on all kinds of subjects in terms of science, viruses, and the history of humans. And if you're into science, you've definitely got to check him out. This is our 99th episode, as I said at the top of this podcast, and I've got a fun one planned for number 100. But I do just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening to this one. I appreciate you listening. And if you like what you hear, the best way to let me know is to let others know with a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or iHeartRadio. Just Google a fresh agenda and you'll find a spot to leave some thoughts. You can also visit my website at mendonsamedia.com. I'm Christina Mendonca. Thanks so much for being here. Let's stay connected. This is a fresh agenda, bringing your productivity and creativity together to generate your deepest work.